from VOA Press Conference USA. Here is your host, Carol Castiel. Welcome to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. I'm Carol Castiel. Our special guest on this edition of the program is Ambassador Patrick Gaspar, President and CEO of the Center for American Progress. That's a liberal think tank based here in Washington. The center's website notes that Patrick Gaspar was a key figure in President Barack Obama's administration, where he held numerous positions, including serving as ambassador to South Africa. From 2011 to 2013, Ambassador Gaspar was the executive director of the National Democratic Committee. That's the governing body of the U.S. Democratic Party, which coordinates strategy to support Democratic candidates for local, state, and national office. Before assuming the helm at the Center for American Progress, Ambassador Gaspar served for four years as president of the Open Society Foundations, one of the largest private philanthropies in the world. During his tenure, he witnessed the rise of authoritarian regimes and the spread of COVID-19 worldwide and took action to address these developments. In addition, Ambassador Gaspar demonstrated a strong commitment to civil rights, particularly in the wake of the murder of George Floyd in May 2020, which sparked a national reckoning on race. While he was U.S. Ambassador to the Republic of South Africa from 2013 to 2016, Patrick Gaspar led the effort to redesign PEPFAR. That's the U.S. government's HIV-AIDS initiative started under former President George W. Bush to integrate it into the South African healthcare system. Ambassador Gaspar was born in Kinshasa, the Democratic Republic of Congo, to Haitian parents and grew up in New York City. He began his distinguished career in the field of organized labor, electoral politics, and public service. His multi-ethnic background is emblematic of the cauldron of rich cultures, which defines the United States of America. As we celebrate Black History Month, we are all the more privileged to welcome Ambassador Patrick Gaspar, who is the recipient of the Springarn Medal, the highest honor bestowed by the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Ambassador Patrick Gaspar joins us via Microsoft Teams. Welcome to the program. Carol, thank you so very much for having me on at this incredibly important moment in the world. As I said, it's an honor for us. And Ambassador, I'd like you to start with talking to us about your background and the string of accomplishments, which I mentioned, and of course, many more. Tell us a bit about yourself. How did you get from the DRC, where we have many listeners, by the way, to New York City? How did your Haitian parents get to the DRC to begin with? Give us a sense of how you came to be. I'll try to do that, Carol. And, and I have to say that I really appreciate your description of the United States as a multicultural cauldron. I'm going to start to use that as a phrase I'm stealing from you from now on. Be my guest. <laughs> Thank you. My parents are from Haiti. My father came of age as a young lawyer in Haiti at the same time, regrettably, that the GVIA dictatorship took hold in the country. He was a young legal activist and believed that there ought to be democracy in the country, free and fair elections, transparency, no corruption. As you can imagine, that did not go over well with the dictatorship. And he was told in no uncertain terms that he had to cease and desist from his activities or he might be disappeared. And all of the intellectual class in Haiti at that point was seen as a threat to the dictatorship. Fortunately for my parents, this occurred at the same time that Lumumba had come into power in the Congo. 
Dag Hammarskjöld stood up the UNESCO program, was determined to help the Congolese establish a new education system in the country to replace the French and Belgian educators that had left. So throughout the diaspora, French speakers of African descent who could teach the next generation of leaders in the Congo, and my father and hundreds of other Haitian intellectuals decamped uh, into the Congo. He lived in Kinshasa and then Matadi. I was born in that period. My father lived in the Congo through most of the decade of the 60s with my mother coming and going and eventually migrated to the United States and our family was reunited there. I have three older brothers, two younger sisters. We all came together in the U.S. I grew up in New York City where I was always intimately involved in diaspora activity at the foot of my father, learning activism, organizing community development, and eventually developed the aspiration to be engaged in politics in the U.S., but always with an eye towards what it meant to connect with diaspora, to strengthen partnerships between African Americans and Africans, and to really invest in the bilateral relationships between nations and the rest is on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, certainly obvious that you have succeeded and you have so much more to go. Now you're at the helm of CAP, the Center for American Progress, one of the most prominent think tanks identified with the Democratic Party. What are your goals as CEO, priorities, and role in Democratic Party politics? I'd say that right now, Carol, we are at a knife's edge moment in politics in America, but in truth, politics around the globe. In your introduction of me, you said that at the time that I led the Open Society Foundation, I had this experience of witnessing the kind of rebirth of autocracies around the world. That is absolutely true. But even in democratic spaces, we've seen an inclination towards electing illiberal populists. And Donald Trump certainly was a manifestation of that. But it's not just Donald Trump. There is an entire movement and an infrastructure that supports this kind of rightward tilt, extreme rightward tilt that comes with associations of white supremacy that is connected to anti-government strains that lead to violence, as we saw here in the United States on January 6th, in what can only be described as an insurrection, an attempt to overturn a valid outcome in a democratically held election in our country. So my decision to now take on the helm of the Center for American Progress and to partner with others to lead it in this moment comes with a recognition of the existential threat that we're faced with, the democracies we're faced with, and the need to really stand up some scaffolding around our institutions. I believe that if we're not properly addressing issues of economic inclusion, climate justice, expanded access to health care, certainly the kinds of investments that we need to make across the board in racial equity in the United States, that we will find ourselves on the outside looking in on democratic practice. So that's what I'm invested in. And I'm privileged to have several hundred extraordinary colleagues who come with expertise, but also come with the courage and conviction that this moment requires of us. Thank you for that. And speaking of a liberal populist, you mentioned former President Trump. Let's talk briefly about the January 6th committee, which has been tasked with looking back, reconstructing this horrific attack on the rule of law, which was indeed perpetrated 
by the defeated former president who incited it for the purpose of overturning a result, his loss, which he did not like. And explain to our listeners why it is not, as many detractors allege, many of whom are mostly Republican, that it is not a power play by Democrats. After all, there are even two distinguished Republicans on the committee. But to what extent is really a necessary exercise to bring accountability and to prevent such heinous assaults from ever happening again? This is a central question and conversation in public policy in America, politics in America, that I feel is actually being under-examined in our daily discourse. What happened on January 6th was nothing short of violent insurrection against the country, against the government, against the very notion of democratic transitions. A few weeks ago, Carol, there was some shock when the Republican National Committee issued a censure of the two Republican members of Congress who were on the January 6th committee, who voted for impeachment, and who were determined to have a proper forensics examination of all that occurred in government and outside of government to stir on this uh, insurrection was real shock when the Republican committee issued a document that not only censured those two, but described the proceedings on January 6th as legitimate political discourse. I want to be crystal clear for your listeners that there is nothing legitimate or appropriate discourse about what occurred. It was nothing short of violence to overturn an election. And the members of this committee are showing the thoughtfulness, the consideration that's commensurate with the level of crisis that we would have had in this country if not for the then Vice President Mike Pence ignoring the demands at point of bayonet from his president and from the mob to not honor the account from the Electoral College. So we barely averted a constitutional crisis that would have been a broader crisis in the democracy. And it's necessary now to have a proper hearing of exactly what took place so that we don't repeat this history again in the future. Indeed. And, you know, in a related matter, we're seeing the former president try to withhold critical documents. And in some cases, destroy them. We've read reports that he repeatedly attempted to destroy presidential records, some of which may have been classified. Do you have any shadow of a doubt that if the shoe were on the other foot, that is, if a Democrat had destroyed or taken classified documents from the White House in violation of law, that the Republicans would be howling foul play and advocating that the Justice Department pursue and prosecute? Carol, it's really hard to uh, hold back my laughter at the question. I don't have to answer that in the hypothetical. We actually had a real-time example of exactly what Republicans did when there wasn't an actual violation on the law, but they created the smokescreen of a violation. Your listeners will well recall the 2016 campaign when there was a story in the New York Times that Hillary Clinton had used a private email server to correspond with an official State Department business. Based on that one New York Times story alone, not about an actual violation, but about the use of a private server, Republicans, who were then in control of Congress, issued 70 subpoenas and official requests 
from House Republicans made in less than three months leading up to uh, a massive investigation. There was a robust FBI investigation into the matter. There was a three-year-long investigation into the State Department by Republicans once they took office. So again, just based on the smokescreen of an allegation against then-Secretary of State and then-Presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, we had Republicans leading chance of lock her up and throw her in jail, and we had the entire Department of justice being overturned to be used for political purposes. And now there is a deathly appalling silence from 99% of Republican leadership, other than Mitch McConnell denouncing January 6th, Senator Mitt Romney denouncing January 6th. There's continued silence on January 6th, but as you said, that silence has continued in an astonishing way when we learn all of these details about how classified documents were being passed around serving trays in Mar-a-Lago and how apparently the President of the United States, while in the White House, was flushing classified documents down his uh, golden toilet. And we also know that there are significant gaps in White House phone records from the White House on January 6th, which should remind some of us of the gaps that existed in White House recordings from the Nixon years. So this is a remarkable betrayal, not just by Donald Trump, but by the entire Republican leadership of what it means to maintain full faithfulness to the Constitution of the United States. It's astonishing and hypocritical. It's difficult not to laugh out loud at the question. Indeed, laugh out loud if it were not so serious. <laughs> yeah. We'll have more in just a moment, but first, you're listening to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. Our guest is Ambassador Patrick Gaspar, former U.S. Ambassador to South Africa, currently President and CEO of the Liberal Center for American Progress. I'm Carol Castiel, and this is a reminder that our PCUSA podcast is available on our website at voanews.com slash PCUSA. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel, VOA. But here's a shout out to a Facebook fan, Kibson Egori from Kampala, Uganda. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to PCUSA at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. So back to our special guest, Ambassador Patrick Gaspar. And Ambassador, before we go on to other topics, just another follow-up you know, regarding January 6th, the domestic terrorism that we're seeing happening in our country. You know, We're seeing white supremacist groups, anti-government militias, anti-Semitic groups, all of these groups, such as the Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, Proud Boys, were present at the insurrection on the Capitol. But as I said earlier, it's clear that while former President Trump did not create these groups, he certainly amplified their voices, gave them permission in a sense to pursue their heinous beliefs and objectives openly. How do you explain this phenomena, as I said, which Trump didn't create, but clearly he stoked and amplified? Do we need perhaps a domestic terror law? You know, analysts talk about the First Amendment. It prevents this type of legislation legislation, which we have for foreign terrorists, but some people are wondering if it's perhaps too broad, you know, that it's time to go after these groups more aggressively before they spread their hatred, before they strike and kill innocents. 
Yes, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to address this with some precision, Carol. And I also really admire the fact that you were making a strong distinction between what Donald Trump fomented versus what preceded him and what's become really material across the country. The dog whistle politics around white supremacy have long been a feature of American politics going back generations. We know that this has been the path to power for many and that regret. Incredibly, the modern Republican Party has adopted it as a kind of toolkit that's part of uh, their checklist. We saw white supremacists, ultra-nationalists, and violent militias march in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. They were met with radical encouragement by the then president of the U.S. and, most tragically, silenced from his allies and those in power who should have condemned these organizations and their actions but chose not to. You could draw a direct dotted line from the silence violence of what occurred in 2017 in Charlottesville, straight up through the attempted insurrection on January 6th, and I dare say the threat of far worse into the future. There are some specific things that we can and should do, Carol. Center for American Progress, along with the McCain Institute in 2021, released a set of recommendations of concrete steps for countering this white supremacist violence. We believe that we absolutely need to dedicate more resources across federal agencies to address this threat. We need to create new standards to prevent supremacists from infiltrating or recruiting the military, law enforcement, and the federal workforce. That's something that is only just beginning to get serious attention now. It was interesting to see in a New York Times story this week about the blockade that's occurring at the border of Canada, and the New York Times noted the number of former military that are involved in those kinds of actions. We've seen that over the years with white supremacist groups in this country, with high levels of infiltration in the military and law enforcement, that needs to be examined and absolutely stopped. We also need to improve data collection, research, and reporting across state lines. We don't do a good job of that. And if a supremacist group, a violent group, is flagged in one state, that information is not being shared in real time along, with, along similar platforms for tracking purposes across the country. There are other gaps between federal and state reporting tools and a need to create federal incentives to improve reporting accuracy by state and law enforcement. We also, lastly, need to create additional resources at the Department of Justice and the FBI to protect communities and pursue investigations to criminal prosecutions. That is severely lacking. Right now, we'll have complaints, there'll be grievances, there'll be some cursory investigations that are under-resourced and that are never followed through to prosecution. Prosecution is the greatest deterrent that we have against these groups and that needs to be wielded as a much more effective tool. As you can see, there's no shortage of ideas that we have, of things that we think concretely need to be done at the federal and state level to stem the tide of these violent hate groups. Let's now turn to what I would call a Biden bilan, as we say in French, the little balance sheet of the pros and the cons. This is his first year as he prepares to give his first State of the Union. Ambassador Gaspar, what do you think is keeping his poll numbers down? He has really achieved quite a bit, notwithstanding we have some inflation, which is certainly unfortunate. The COVID bill, he passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Perhaps some parts of the Build Back Better bill could be you know, revived and passed. But we are heading into the midterms. We know that approximately 30 Democrats have decided not to run again and that these off-year elections don't normally favor the party in power. 
where do the Democrats stand? Where does the Biden administration stand? Why do you think the poll numbers are as low as they are? Carol, you just did an excellent job of framing both the crisis, but also the opportunity that President Biden and Democrats have in this moment as they move towards the midterm uh, election. You'd make a pretty good political pundit. You really laid it out really clearly. I think that um, the, the president's numbers are being dragged down by the pandemic environment that we're in. It is difficult to be triumphalist about the gains that have been made in the economy, the significant significantly lower Omicron numbers that we're starting to see now in state after state. The fact that the Biden administration has managed to get over 400 million shots in arms. The fact that the average American household has $341 more per month in their pockets, even accounting for inflation today than they did in 2019. So we've actually come out of the pandemic or we're coming out of the pandemic with stronger GDP than we had before the pandemic. But it's not that feel triumphant about any of that when we are still in COVID phase, temporary shutdowns, when we still right now today have 2,300 Americans that are dying per day from this virus, when we know that significant parts of the service economy have not really recovered to the same level that one would hope for. And there continues to be anxiety amongst Americans that another shutdown, another variant could come at any moment. So it's hard for the average person to maintain their optimism in this moment, but we are starting to see new rallying. There is a sense that we can get over this thing, that we may be moving in a measurable way into the endemic phase of uh, the pandemic. We are seeing that the vaccine mandates that, of course, have been weaponized in our politics, but they've been effective and that over 77 percent of Americans who are eligible for vaccination have been vaccinated and that's curbed the tide. You cited much of the success that the president's had in the economy. But since you have an international audience, I'd also say that it's made a real difference in this moment when we're on the verge of a crisis at the border of the Ukraine. It's made a real difference to have a president in the White House who relies on partnership, who works closely with our NATO allies, our EU allies to create joint strategies, to think coherently and in a transparent way about sanctions and the consequence of warfare. Marked difference from the actions of the previous administration. So the Biden White House, as we look at these numbers, has more credibility than Republicans have on economic upturn, more credibility on response to the pandemic, more credibility on global partnership. All of that, Carol, will accrue to the political benefit of this president and his party as they litigate the midterm elections. You noted that 30 Democrats have retired from Congress. When Donald Trump was in office during his last midterm elections, over 40 Republicans retired. It's a thing that happens mid-cycle. It's not surprising at all. We know that there are some political headwinds here, but there's also an opportunity to take up the narrative of all that's been achieved and to bring it to the American people in a way that enables them to take on some comparative shopping. You can't beat something with nothing. As Joe Biden used to say during his election, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. <laughs> That's very interesting. And, and the old saying goes, you know, a day in politics is an eternity. So we have a few months, so we shall see. Yes.
you know, how yeah. that translates in the midterms. Let's move quickly now to the U.S. Supreme Court. President Biden is planning to replace retiring liberal justice Stephen Breyer with a black woman. This would be the first black woman to the U.S. Supreme Court. Several names have been floated. U.S. Court of Appeals Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, Federal Judge Michelle Childs of South Carolina, and perhaps there are more. But I'd like to get your take on the significance, Patrick Gaspar, of, of this nomination. This is really quite a hold-our-breath moment. It is a historic turn for our country and for a Supreme Court that has, uh, let's just say, not been representative of the full dimension of what it means to be an American. Over the course of its entire history, only three justices have been people of color, and only five have been women. Diversity on the federal bench isn't just something that's quote, nice to have. It is an absolute necessity. Carol, there is so much scholarship, so much literature that demonstrates that outcomes in judicial review, in decision-making, are absolutely positively driven by biases, and a lack of representation means that there are vulnerable populations that are significantly disadvantaged in rulings. Confirming the first Black woman to serve as the Supreme Court will bring a new perspective to that court. You just cited names of extraordinary women who are being considered. There is a deep bench of eminently qualified Black women who will work to ensure equal justice under law and to protect the rights of each and every American. Think about this. Your listeners from around the world should have this perspective, Carol. There have been 115 Supreme Court justices in American history, 115. Of those 115, 108 have been white men. That's 94% of everyone who's ever been in the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, your listeners know that white men make up nowhere close to 94% of the entire population of the United States. So that diversity is essential. And I'm pleased to see that there are Republicans like Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, even Lindsey Graham, who is the biggest Donald Trump apologist, even Lindsey Graham, who have said that it is time to have this kind of diversity they're excited to see the picks that President Biden puts forward and that they are prepared to possibly support an African-American woman who's extraordinarily qualified to be on the bench. It will be very exciting uh, when we hear the nominee. Beyond this question of representation, of course, there are really critical issues, life and death issues, if you will, that are decided by that Supreme Court every time it takes up its docket. We know that Republicans are determined to overturn a woman's right to choose in the United States and to overturn Roe v. Wade. They now have conservative majority on that court that poised to do so. So that's a critical issue. But there's also the fact that the Supreme Court has made decision after decision for a generation that has favored big capital, consolidated capital, corporations over the rights of workers. And that's something that is under-examined in our politics and in our courts. And so we need to balance those perspectives as well. And as we close, Ambassador Gaspar, I would like you to put back your ambassadorial hat on. You already spoke eloquently about the value of NATO and how the Biden administration has kept our alliances together and strong. Talk about the role of Africa in the world. You know, you are ambassador to South Africa. We're seeing rising influence of China. We're seeing also, unfortunately, a lot of backsliding 
in democracy. So many coups, as you know, have been occurring in West Africa, also in Sudan, a very sad backsliding on the transition to democracy, which was so hopeful. What more or Sudan, do you Sudan, think? Sudan, yes, Sudan's Sudan. a tragedy. It I, is. I had the occasion to work closely with Prime Minister Hamdok, just a man with real integrity. But most importantly, you know, I will never forget the young people, the women, the medical professionals who took to the streets, who literally put their lives, their bodies in front of the machine to say enough of dictatorship, enough of oppression. So hopefully we can all together lift up a constant, incessant refrain on the need to restore citizen leadership in Sudan. Uh, Ethiopia is an extraordinary challenge. We just saw the 20th anniversary of the African Union observe in Addis, hosted by Prime Minister Abiy, and one could not help but note all of the challenges that exist uh, in that incredible country with fighting that's ongoing in Tigray. So it's a challenging moment. And for your listeners uh, in Nigeria, I'm excited to welcome all of them back to Twitter after their leadership banned them from exactly. the Twitter sphere uh, for the last seven months or so. Africa is incredibly important. I'm pleased to see that the United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas Greenfield, has put Africa front and center as a space of real important multilateral uh, partnership for the U.S. Secretary Blinken has also made that emphasis. Vice President Kamala Harris has stressed it as well. I think we will see some very material things as it relates to trade and energy. Uh, and standing up um, uh, pr proper healthcare infrastructure, global healthcare infrastructure uh, that will be emphasized in the months and the years ahead. I'm excited for all of those opportunities. Uh, climate, most especially, is a place uh, that requires investment. Uh, Africa is paying an outsized price uh, for the sins of the U.S., China, and others uh, on climate. There's much that we can learn from Africa. I was blessed to serve in South Africa, where 77% of the energy in that country is still generated by coal. That's a country that has an abundance of solar power and wind power that's available to it, and I believe will be innovators uh, on renewable energy, and we all have to lean in and make those investments and learn from Africa on these issues. I wish we had more time to discuss this, but as you can see, that's where my passion lies. Perhaps we will have another opportunity, but for now, I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Ambassador Patrick Gaspar is former ambassador to South Africa, now president and CEO of the Center for American Progress. Ambassador, thank you so much for your time and thank critical you, insights. Press Conference USA on The Voice of America was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Press Conference USA on the voice of America.